Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Squirrel with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about traffic fatalities in Los Angeles, the police use of force legislation that's working its way through the state assembly and Senate, some major housing bills that are also going on up there in the legislature, uh, a quick update on public banking, um, and some more in the ongoing saga of our California utilities being... Oh, interesting. Hmm. Uh, how's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. I'm pretty excited. Uh, by the time most people will hear this, uh, the road to a Green New Deal will have come through LA, uh, and it will have come through Chico, and it will have been a great night. And hopefully yes, you will. will have been in the audience, and you will have enjoyed it very much. Well, I will have been in the audience, and yeah. uh, you, you will have been... Uh, in the backstage area, I'm guessing. I'll be around. You're be doing uh, a lot. Yeah, we're also uh, hopefully we're going to be hearing from SEIU uh, in the next couple of days, either today after we've recorded or tomorrow, where they're probably coming out in favor of a Green New Deal, at least over here in California. Yeah. Uh, one of their speakers will be joining us at the road to a Green New Deal. Uh, we've also got Kaniela Ng and uh, Mara Kakusian, who's a really great community activist and organizer with uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility, SoCal, uh, is going to be co emceeing along with Varshini Prakash who's the executive director of Sunrise. I'm going to be recording the entire thing, so hopefully we'll have a podcast episode up soon uh, where we can talk about that. But uh, the other day, Wednesday, you and I met up at a Fair Work Week protest yes. over at City Hall. Let's talk about that for a sec. Yeah, so it was a, a very moving protest. It was a die-in that was being staged in support of uh, basically workers pushing for a Fair Work Week because it's really hard to survive in Los Angeles with the amount of money that people get from their jobs period. Yeah. Uh, but it's even more difficult for people to manage to try to coordinate having the two jobs or three jobs that are often necessary in order to pay their bills and you know their rent and for their gas and everything else when they don't have any real stability in terms of what hours they're going to be working week on week. And it's it's a real struggle, and there's this really great legislation for this Fair Work Week that's working, it's a proposal anyway, that's working its way through city council. Uh, and uh, Koretz was out there speaking in favor of it, yep. uh, which was cool to see. He disappeared pretty quickly after uh, after giving his minute or two of speaking. But Yeah, well, there was also a, there was a bigger uh, uh, concurrent rally for Denim Day happening yeah. on the south lawn of City Hall, so there was a lot of uh, people impressed going over there. Um, the, the Fair Work Week was specifically talking about people who have died and been injured on the job. Yes. So in 2017, there were 5,147 on-the-job fatalities. We're not seeing a decrease in workplace injuries and deaths. We're, in fact, seeing them either stay steady or go up year over year because of these things that that uh, the speakers were talking about, like the rideshare driver was talking about the cycle of debt you get in oh, yeah. and how that eats away at your mental health, uh, how hard it is to work these long hours and not getting enough the sleep. The damage it does to your back when you're sitting in a car. Like, yeah, and when you're, a work, when you're like a retail worker and you're working long hours and you're always economically uh, unsettled and you're not like not anxious that's going to affect your coronary health it's going to lead to a lot of diseases uh, hitting you a lot sooner than they should like heart disease and stuff like that and it makes it much harder to have a healthy work-life balance or even to support yourself on a yeah. real level. And Rachel Reyes was there as well talking about her experience as a, uh, a retail worker having to do, you know, back of shop, like stock efforts and everything else where her employers were pr not providing an adequate amount of uh, support equipment in order for her to properly stock anything or check uh, what was going on with the, the boxes on heavy boxes on high shelves, which uh, as somebody who's not particularly tall, it was difficult for her to uh, get up there and do that work. And then it ended up causing some major back problems for her. And yeah. it's, it's one of those things where like, look, this back of house stuff is dangerous and people need to be 
uh, able to have like a buddy there to spot them. Uh, and just it's, it's, it's always these kinds of problems often are resulting from uh, employers chronically understaffing and pushing more and more uh, stress and risk onto the, uh, onto the employees who are there working these shifts and asking more and more of them in terms of like the, the rampant uh, demands on productivity that come out of these retail workers, which really is just not fair to the workers and it, it puts them at risk of injuries uh, or even death. Like there, there were the number of like shocking stories coming out of that protest uh, where I was not aware of how how dangerous working conditions really are up and down the state of California. It was it was terrifying. Yeah, and that was also on top of talking about wage theft because LA oh, yeah. is the like the the nation's capital of wage theft with twenty five million dollars a day in wages stolen from employees. Uh, our retail sector is the second largest employment sector in the city uh, and in the county. So we're talking about like one hundred and fifty thousand people uh, that are working retail jobs that are subject to these really weird schedules and low pay rates. So not only did we hear from workers, we heard from. Uh, a, uh, an organized uh, driver for Lyft and Uber who talked about their efforts to unionize and also the uh, president of the UFCW 770, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, was there talking about their efforts to get more people unionized, bring more protections into the, the back of the house and into food and com- commercial work, especially as like hotels and nightlife get bigger and bigger. Yeah. So this is going to be something you hear about a lot over the next couple of years. Uh, Herb Wesson has also been pushing it mm-hmm. um, and it looks like the city council really does want to make some changes and it's such like an obvious issue here. It's just so the, fundamental. The number of people who are working those jobs because like the economy is way more unsettled. A lot more people are working what we considered, you know, entry level or like part time, not really like career ish jobs. Yeah. But that's becoming the way a lot of people uh, support themselves and their families. And yet we see those wages and working conditions deteriorating. So I'm really happy to see the Los Angeles City Council uh, grabbing the bull by the horns, as it were, and trying to force companies uh, to treat their workers with a modicum of respect and livable wages. Uh, but I know it's going to be an uphill fight, and it's something we also need to see uh, stretching out you know, across the entire state. Yeah, and on a related note, uh, talking about the, those uh, ride-hailing apps and whatnot, uh, there is going to be a strike coming up here on May 8th. So everybody uh, be cognizant of the fact that Lyft and Uber drivers uh, who stand in solidarity with their fellow workers and are trying to fight for fair wages and, uh, you know, uh, fair worker protections and everything else associated with you know being an employee uh, are are staging a protest on May eighth from midnight to midnight. Uh, so all the drivers are supposed to be uh, logging off the apps and not using them for all of LA. Which means if you are using it, you are crossing the digital picket line. And yeah, don't do that. And there's also going to be some events to get involved with. There's going to be a pic- uh, picnic, uh, cookout. So if you want to meet some drivers, talk to folks, see how you can build solidarity. Uh, May eighth is going to be a really, really good day. And it seems like we're going to be having these strikes periodically until we kind of get that labor situation settled. Yeah, uh, and that's good. We yeah. need we need those strikes to get this thing moving. Come on. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and talk about a little bit about uh, Vision Zero or the yeah. lack of Vision Zero oh, here God. in LA because uh, the LA Times was doing some reporting on cumulative numbers on traffic fatalities, especially for reporting. yeah cyclists and pedestrians. And uh, it's not happy reading, folks. It's not. No, it's it's extremely bleak. Uh, Laura Nelson over at LA Times has done some really good work on this. So uh, it's official. 
Uh, according to reporting from Lauren Nelson over at the LA Times, cars have been more deadly than guns in Los Angeles in the three and a half years since Mayor Eric Garcetti announced the failing Vision Zero project. And let's remember that when Nipsey Hessel got shot, Michael Moore and Eric Garcetti came out and made a big thing about how violent, you know, how much gun violence we have in LA and how this is a particularly deadly year. And look at all these people who just got shot in a short period of time. Uh, and yet when a, a grandmother gets killed on Hyperion Boulevard in less than ideal conditions, the city turns around and says, oh no, it was the driver. It's not this incredibly unsafe road that we haven't fixed. Yeah. So we know where the priorities lie. Yeah. So here's some of those bleak statistics. 932 people have been killed by cars since the announcement was made, which was aimed at eliminating traffic fatalities in the city of L.A. by 2025. Uh, this is the 2015 Vision Zero. The 2015 yeah. Vision Zero says that they wanted to eliminate all traffic fatalities within 10 years. Uh, so fun stat, fatal crashes are up 32% since that announcement in 2015, but the city is actually tracking the current fatality rate, uh, against the 2016 numbers, which they introduced as a benchmark. Uh, and those, those 2016 numbers were 40% higher than in 2015 when the actual announcement was made. Uh, by the end of 2016, Vision Zero had already been in place for 18 months, and it was still the deadliest year for LA traffic in recorded history. Uh, honestly, it doesn't make any sense that the city yeah. is going to be using that year as the baseline uh, because that's the deadliest year. So, of course, everything is going to go down a bit from that. Um, but for comparison, New York City uses 2014, which was the year before they implemented Vision Zero, as their benchmark, and they've seen a 33% decline in traffic fatalities over the last five years. So that's almost like a 30% increase in fatalities here in LA we're talking well, about. Well, uh, yeah. So in LA, over the, the for the same comparison, we've got a 26.7% increase in traffic fatalities. Uh, if we were to use the 2014 uh, fatality statistic as our benchmark in the same way that New York does, because it's from the year before we introduced this measure. Uh, so the meager year-in-year -year progress here in LA is a far cry from that 20% target that Garcetti had originally laid out for 2017, and it does not trend well for the 2025 goal of nothing, no fatalities. Hmm. Um, but for a little, little bit of comparison here, 26 out of the 40 most dangerous streets in LA have actually been receiving safety improvements, with uh, 1,369 changes having been made over the course of 2017 and 2018. The changes are things like fresh paint for crosswalks, makes it easier for drivers to see, uh, white plastic posts at street corners, which are often reflective and force the drivers to slow down, uh, as well as some changes in signal timing, which honestly, those are some of the coolest things that I've seen around, especially in downtown, yeah. where uh, everybody gets a red light while pedestrians are given a couple of seconds of lead time, which means that fewer people are running the lights and running over pedestrians. At the same time, we have something like 7,500 miles of road here in yeah. LA. Um, and it's, it's basically, uh, we have thousands of miles that have not been touched and thousands yeah. of miles that have like a lot of problems because here in LA, we only fix a road if it's A, going to get the city sued, B, kill someone, or C is rated a B or above. Like if you if your uh, residential road is like a C minus or below, the city just isn't paying to fix it. They yeah. just made the decision a while it's ago. It's too expensive. Yeah, why would you fix it when it's that <laughs> broken? Just let it get all the way broken. But uh, Deborah Murray Murphy, uh, who's the founder of Los Angeles Walks, told the LA Times that quote We're doing little band aid improvements until we change the physical construction of our streets. People are not going to perceive them differently. They are going to continue to speed. 
And folks, that's literally what the real problem is here. Um, because if you think about it and you look at the statistics, a pedestrian has a 10% risk of death when struck by a vehicle that's moving at 20 miles an hour. But that jumps all the way up to a horrifying 80% risk of being killed once that vehicle is at 40 miles an hour. That little change is incredibly deadly. And it's, it's something we've talked about before where in 2008, the financial crisis actually led to this problem now because in order oh, yeah. to in order to raise or lower a speed limit on a street you have to do a traffic study of it within 2 years of wanting to raise or lower it technically it's the enforceability of the speed limits yeah, but fair, yes. fair enough but you can't effectively raise or lower a speed yeah. limit without this traffic study the city of Los Angeles because it went broke during 2008 along with the rest of the state of California yep. didn't do these studies for like 5 years so when they came back and started checking how fast everyone was driving when no one was getting pulled over for speeding after after five years, mm-hmm. amazingly, all of these roads got faster. Yes. And because of stupid state laws that always preference faster drivers, they had to go with higher speed limits. So a, speed, so a street that was 35 but unenforceable had to jump all the way up to 45 miles an hour because everyone was speeding on it. Yep. So uh, the statistics behind that are fun because it was uh, in an attempt to start, you know, making these these speed limits be enforceable. They did go out and they did a research. They resurveyed. Uh, what the speed conditions were on a few hundred miles of road. And they ended up increasing that speed limit on more than 200 miles of road across Los Angeles. Yeah, no, I remember we reported on that. And it was like, they were like 10 streets were lowering the speed limit. And these were dangerous streets. Don't get me wrong. Like these were streets that like need to have the speed limit come down. But there were others where they're like, Coanga, just pedal to the metal and screw it. I mean, we really just fundamentally need to change the state law related to the enforceability of street of speed limits and the determination of speed limits. It should not just be prevailing traffic. The, the safety of pedestrians and cyclists absolutely must be taken into account. We just let Elon Musk program all of our cars. No. For us. He had that tweet about where he's like, hey, the trade-off oh between, my God. Uh, like, we're going to give you a more dangerous automatic <laughs> driving mode where you might get into a fender bender. And you're like, who did you make that for? What you just you have like daredevils behind the wheel where they're and, like I want to I want to get into an accident today in my robot car that's supposed to avoid accidents. So and, uh, and that's it really completely defeats that whole thing that everyone's been talking about where robot cars are going to make it so safe for us to drive and it's going to kill the auto insurance industry. Well, no, if you let Elon decide that you can have a risky autopilot that's going to make more aggressive driving decisions and get you there you know, a couple of seconds faster uh, at the risk of ramming other cars off the road or hitting pedestrians and cyclists, that's, that's not a good trade, folks, and it should not be legal. Well, one of my friends pointed this out, and he's like very lawyerly minded, um, and it's not ace. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> he, this guy used to do like more corporate law, so he has a very libertarian take on stuff, but he's oh, like, fun. look, when Mercedes starts putting driverless car tech into their cars and the the ethical question comes up of like do you kill the driver or do you kill the child on a bicycle the mercedes like company is going to sell the killing the child on a bicycle because you're not going to pay 80 grand for a car that will kill you you're not going to drop good money on like a Mm. bentley that won't kill a child in order to protect your life like the rich people who will be the the early adopters of this technology are going to opt for self-preservation like the cars will be safer for them, but not for us. And it takes me to that Ray Bradbury short story where, like, a guy goes out for a walk. Or no, it's Fahrenheit 451, uh, where the his young female friend gets hit by a car that's speeding down the road, doing, like, 100 miles an hour. And he goes out maniacally trying to find the person who, you know, did that. And that's basically the future we're moving to with Elon here, where he's like... You know, I like robots, and I've told you AI was going to kill you all, and now I'm going to make that happen. 
Oh, that's bleak. So um, before we move on from this, there is there is actually a hopeful note to end this segment on. Uh, Senator Scott Weiner introduced a state bill uh, earlier that would require Caltrans to incorporate a quote-unquote complete streets design in its highways. Um, that really might not seem like it's a big deal, but a surprising number of city streets across the state are technically highways that fall under the purview of Caltrans. So these changes at the state level could really mean a significantly safer future for pedestrians and cyclists up and down the state. Including yeah. here in LA, yeah, and it's it's also it's a grant based program and trying to get people, uh, trying to get local governments to develop uh, multi uh, modal streets. Uh, I will not say that three times fast, <laughs> but basically encouraging them to have like a street where like you can have a lane of traffic and a bike lane and a, a, a bird scooter lane yeah. and all of the stuff that we're missing when you know you see that lime scooter shooting down the street at you at like downtown and you're like you're not supposed to ride that on the sidewalk and then you look out into the deadly dangerous street and you're like I wouldn't ride that in the street. <laughs> either just put it down um but yeah hopefully moving towards a future where we have these more dense urban centers that actually do allow like multiple ways of getting around um it's it's a little bit still kind of messy and i don't fully trust mr wiener because i know that like lime is giving him a lot of money to be he like hey a lot of money from a lot of folks yeah so there there is some self-interest in it but still like Having fewer people die would be great because this is also the anniversary, almost a a little bit more than a year since Woon was killed down in South L.A. Mm -hmm. The woman who killed him and left the scene of that very violent accident finally facing charges. It took effing forever. The weird part was there was a protest like the day or two after he got uh, after Woon got Uh killed and a woman ran her car into one of the cyclists. LAPD was able to find the woman who hit the cyclist at the, the protest two weeks before they were able to find the driver who yeah. killed Woon. And like, if you go back and listen to my interview with Don, uh, Don Ward, AKA Roadblock, uh, he talks about how uh, when he got hit on Hyperion, mm-hmm. uh, the guy, you know, ran and he memorized the license plate and he called LAPD and was like, here's the license plate. And LAPD was like, oh, it's going to take us like a month to find that license plate. Ki- I kid you know, his buddy, at C- yeah, his buddy at uh, uh, CHP, Got the license plate number, plugged it in, searched the database they have of cars that are in for repairs, got a possible hit. So Don and his lawyer showed up at a Jaguar dealership where the oh. car was being repaired and stopped them from getting repairs, got an investigator out there, uh, oh. were able to take the guy to trial. He pled out. He got a 90-day suspension on his license. Uh, he never got tested for uh, they were never able to, to prove whether he was drinking and driving or not, but he was one of the biggest uh, and still is one of the biggest lobbyists at City Hall. Wow. Uh, he was at Smith & Molenski's, which is a storied bar over there on Bunker Hill. So, you know, if you're like a lobbyist who's at a bar uh, between like five and seven, you're probably at happy hour and probably having a drink or two. And in the city of Los Angeles, if you hit someone, there's a good chance you're going to get away if you run. And that's still a problem we don't even come close to solving with any of this legislation. But something like 40 to 60 percent of accidents in the city uh, involve hit and runs. And fortunately, not... most of those are not against pedestrians or cyclists, but I think with pedestrians and cyclists, it's like 60% because you're probably not going to get up and memorize a license plate. Like Don is like six foot seven and like some sort of weird giant person. <laughs> so he had the fortitude to like get up after being hit by a car and be like, I'm going to memorize that license plate. Most of us would not be that lucky. So uh, we're making strides towards safer streets, uh, but I still, you know, when I ride my bike, I. There's a uh, spectacles, testicles, wallet, and watch before I get out and get rolling because, you know, 
there are people I used to ride bikes with that I can't ride bikes with anymore because some car ran a light or yeah. some car sideswiped them. And well, that's things are taking that uh, that slightly hopeful future. Yeah, and, and turning uh, it turning it not. Yeah. yeah well, so. we do have a slightly hopeful future to uh, yeah. to talk about a little bit. So uh, the cops are probably getting regulated. We got SB fourteen twenty one last year. Uh, we're looking at SB three ninety two. I'm sorry, AB three ninety two. Let's go ahead and talk about the death of the police union backed SB two thirty. Yeah. So the use of force bill that was being backed by police unions across the state, SB 230, is dead. On Tuesday this week, a Senate legislative committee uh, removed all mention of the use of force from the bill, effectively removing the milk toast option from the table and leaving moderate Democrats nowhere to hide in relation to the use of force legislation. That means that the only thing that's left available to them is Assembly Bill 392, which is being backed by a whole bunch of athlete, back, backed by a whole bunch of activists, and uh, is gr- funnily enough co-authored by our you and my state senator Holly Mitchell. Uh, this bill has been called the toughest standard in the nation for determining when police can use deadly force. And it is about time. Yeah. Now, SB 230 uh, was basically a way to enshrine the status quo as far as what's okay with use of force. That, uh, what is it? Law enforcement officers' bill of rights type stuff? Uh, yeah, not quite that strong, but more like, hey, we'll train for de-escalation uh-huh. and we'll have required like when to not shoot somebody training. But there was still the reasonable standard of force. Yeah. You know, not like was it necessary to shoot that person? Was it necessary to beat that person with your baton? It was was it reasonable at the time? Which Did you always feel threatened? Yeah, it comes back. Back to the officer's state of mind, which a lot of times doesn't make any effing sense. Like, I I don't care if the officer feels scared. I objectively care if there's a threat to other people. Yes. You know, the officer feeling scared does not justify every single one of those shootings. So uh, uh, AB 390 or 392 is going to alter things in fundamental ways, changing the use of force from reasonable to necessary. So it has to be necessary to stop somebody getting away when they could be a danger. It has to be necessary to protect somebody's life, uh, either the officer's or somebody else's life. You can't just uh, use your weapon or use violent tactics uh, because you feel threatened or because you think that might be the least bad option. It has to be the only available option. Uh, uh, SB 230 has gotten attached to uh, AB 392 essentially. So it's now just a, a slate of uh, training recommendations and standards the police departments will have to meet, but it, it's Which really is fine. yeah, and it's really rubbed police chiefs the wrong way. Who are like, you can't have officers second guessing themselves in the field, and it's like we totally want that. I totally want yeah. a cop <laughs> to wait two seconds before second pulling the guess, gun. Don't shoot. That will literally save lives. It's yes. like. If you just like we're saying with with uh, traffic accidents, if you just slow down 10 miles an hour, uh, you save so many lives. The same thing happens here when police allow their fear and their anxiety to set the tempo. That's when people die. That's when we see people like Laquan McDonald shot, you know, 19 times. We have a cop emptying a clip and then firing a whole other clip. And it's like that's not a rational brain working. No, this is some really big news for police accountability. And hopefully with the, the backup of SB 1421, we're going to be seeing more reasonable uh, prosecution, prosecutions of officers, mm-hmm. more reasonable like use of force when it is necessary because even though I'm an abolitionist, I know the cops aren't going away tomorrow. They're yeah. still going to do it. So um, hopefully this will begin to diminish uh, violent use of force and we'll begin to see more escalation, de-escalation tactics. Um, so I've got some hope for finally fighting back against the police unions. Uh, and on, on a, a, a related note to that, the Fallout from 1421 is going to be really far-reaching, I think, especially yeah. with the context of what that uh, that USA Today USA Today report that came out 
uh, today. I mean, uh, which, you know, the tide is turning when USA Today is like, hey, yeah. maybe cops <laughs> aren't good. And you're like, whoa, wait, what? Yeah, it's kind of shocking to have seen that. But one of the really great things that's coming out of all of this is that people are actually starting to look and care about what it is that the cops are doing after it really just kind of falling off the radar for the last 20 or so years. Uh, you know, basically everything since it really seems like uh, 2001 with 9-11, there's really been just a complete shift of a massive uh, indoctrination of, a, of an inherent respect for authority that you know, was not really the thing that was felt on the streets back when the 1992 uprising occurred. And it's really cool to be seeing the reporting from uh, the folks over at the LA Times really digging into like what our sheriff and what our police department are doing and the kinds of uh, basically overuse of force and frankly criminality rampant within these departments that has just been covered up over and over and over again. And I'm saying it's rampant because when, you know, if you've got a bad apple and then you're covering for that bad apple, you're complicit in the crime. Uh, yeah, and we also have like white supremacist gangs that we keep just finding out about here in LA, like the the sheriff's department, we yeah. busted like a dozen gangs in the last like uh, six years or so. Like we Make keep finding guys like <laughs> Paul Tanaka who has like white supremacist tattoos yeah. and you're like why is he the number two officer in the sheriff's <laughs> department how did he get there with yeah. this white supremacist gang affiliation uh but yeah it's it's uh it's giving me finally some hope and it's also we know that the local fight is going to keep coming that the, the cops are dragging their feet on public records requests that they're taking a long time to respond to that and finding a lot of reasons to say oh no we can't afford to like xerox that we only have a two <laughs> billion dollar budget we can't we can't afford to well, copy no, 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 stuff no, but you got to remember they got to be able to send out those five or six cops with every sanitation sweep to make sure that the homeless people who don't have any weapons or are not violent are going to not uh, I don't know what they're expecting them to do, but they got to be out there with their guns and the tasers because of reasons. Well, like Michael Kohlhaas has, you know, just a fantastic Twitter feed, but was posting about how uh, they keep having these arcane delivery methods for documents where like lawyers oh, yeah. are refusing to transmit them electronically or they'll send a DVD that just happens to be broken <laughs> in half or they'll send them a USB drive like by priority overnight mail. And you're just like, it is 2019. The cloud exists. There are safe ways to share these documents. Uh, so Plus, if they're public records, you really should just be able to access them. Yeah. I, like, you, come on. Yeah, you are paying for them. Um, you know, <laughs> We've it, already is, paid yeah, for them. <laughs> this, this is our money at work. But let's, let's talk a little bit more about our assembly at work because we yeah. had a slate of housing bills. And there were some really good showdowns today between uh, the California Apartment Association, ACE Action, uh, Housing as a Human Right. Like, all the heavy housing hitters were up in Sacramento uh, to make a lot of noise. Uh, a lot, most of the folks that look like up there on the side of tenants, but a big landlord presence. So let's kind of break down what's going on with housing law because this is a, this week is pretty much going to set the tempo for the next two years. Absolutely, and bear in mind that there are a huge number of landlords in the assembly and in the Senate because that's just what the statistics show. So we've got three housing bills that have been under threat of death in uh, committee this last week. And uh, that, that would basically happen before they can reach the floor of the state assembly uh, or the Senate uh, for a general vote or make it even onto f other committees like appropriations. Uh, the three that we're going to talk about right now are SB 529, which is the right of tenants to organize without fear of reprisal. 
uh, basically, and AB 36, which was effectively just a modification of Costa-Hawkins that would ease prohibitions on municipalities from enacting rent control uh, or updating their existing rent control laws. And then also uh, AB 1482, which was an anti-rent gouging measure that would cap rent increases at 5% plus uh, the cost of living uh, for, for every year whenever a tenant is up for their having their lease renewed. So SB 529 in, in particular is particularly important because it would really enshrine some of the tactics and tools that we've been seeing pop up here in LA over the last few years. Uh, from the bill's Judiciary Committee analysis, quote, tenant unions and rent strikes are virtually unknown today compared to years past because the machinery of eviction has become much more efficient and ruthless, end quote. So this is really talking about the fact that tenants, though they are technically being protected uh, in terms of the habitability, the livability, you know, all of these other issues surrounding their rent, they are the ones who are supposed to be protected by the law. But the reality of the situation is that the landlord almost always has the upper hand in these kinds of confrontations when it comes to eviction because they're the ones who hire the lawyers and the tenants are often in a, in a financial situation where they literally just cannot afford to do that. Well, and the, the demand on the market has become so much oh, greater. Yeah. You have Airbnb moving in. There was just a study done by Zillow that came out today showing that when Airbnb moves into a neighborhood, all oh, of the horrible. rents go up, yeah. like the amount of money that landlords can see themselves making, that adds a pressure in and of itself, like understanding that you could double or triple your revenue in a year by skirting the law is a really powerful motivation to get people out of their place, even yeah. if it's illegal, even if you know like that you're going to pay fines, you're probably going to make more money than the fines cost you. You're probably going to be able to stash that cash. And if yeah. you're smart about it, you're just going to have like invest it and get enough interest or dividends off of that investment that you pay the fines with that. I mean, hell, that's how Wells Fargo stays. In that's, this is exactly what happens with corporations all across the U.S., especially the big ones. Uh, I mean, literally, un until we make the fines be worse than the uh, profits that you can get out of it, these kinds of things are just going to keep happening. The good news with SB 529 is that it has passed through its first hearing on Tuesday and is headed toward the Appropriations Committee, where it will unfortunately likely face some pretty staunch opposition because yeah. appropriations is where all of the good bills go to die. Yep. So uh, a, a related but different bill, AB 36, uh, again, that that is the one talking about um, allowing municipalities to enact rent control. What, what we're, what's kind of being referred to as rolling Costa-Hawkins, yes. like it would sort of uh, open up some space within the Costa-Hawkins law to allow experimentation with rent control without bringing it to a state level. It's yes. not Prop 10. It's even more watered down kind of Prop 10. Yeah, exactly. So despite adding some concessions to the landlords and realtors, like changing the number of rental homes that you can own without being immune to rent control from two or more to being 10 or fewer, which is a pretty dramatic change right there, uh, as well as modifying the rolling date for rent control to be 20 years instead of 10 years old, uh, was referred back to the Committee on, of Housing and Community Development, which is where it started. And that likely means that this bill is dead for the rest of this legislative term. Yeah, it's going back to rules. So it's going to probably be rewritten, which like isn't great for its uh, future for at least this legislative session. It could still come back like something could happen. But there's a lot of staunch opposition to this one. And also, like if you notice, even the carve out that they put in there, the 10 or fewer homes. Uh, the only people that would not meet that specific guidance <laughs> would like be Blackstone. the yeah exactly the huge corporations like Blackstone like most multifamily like rental home owners own like three or four 
uh, which is still too many effing homes. Give up some of your homes. You only need one home. Like, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> but I can, you can see that carve out coming from like the small and mid-sized landlord, which even then I feel weird saying small. Because if you own like multiple homes in the city, you're owning multi-million dollars worth of property. Like there's not, that is not a small in any sense. Like you're, you're, you're not like a lemonade people. stand. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're yeah. one of those people who would actually be, you know, impacted by an estate tax at that point. So uh, the final one here is AB 14. Which did just pass out of the Committee of Housing and Community and Development uh, today, just a couple of hours before we are recording this. And this one had some back and forth yes, between Tuesday did. and today. Yeah, there no. was some drama in the assembly. <laughs> yeah, so fortunately, it is moving forward. And uh, this is the the anti rent gouging uh, prop. Yeah. The, so uh, it would it would uh, attach basically uh, max rent increases to uh, CPI, the Consumer Price Index, or AKA inflation. Plus five percent. Yes. Now the the landlords and the realtors and like the money in the room uh, have pressured uh, uh, Assemblyman Chu to lock into the five percent because there was some thinking like what you do is you come in the first year you're like CPI plus five, then in five years you cut it out and cut it to like CPI plus three. I like that. Eventually idea. you're down to like CPI plus one, which is actually kind of a reasonable increase for somebody yeah. living in their place when wages aren't growing uh, because the landlord argument is always, oh, well, with inflation, like I can't afford to upkeep the building. It's like, F you, you're not paying the inflation here. That's no. not where, plus you're not taking into account, like inflation in America, and this is why I hate economics, <laughs> is they're like, oh, we have this beautiful theory. And somebody's like, oh, you know what? Food and fuel prices destroy your theory. And they're like, oh, you know what? We just won't count them. They're, they're too volatile to count in year-over-year -year inflation. It's like, wow, it's weird because when I look at my bank statements, where do I spend most of my money? On yeah. food or on housing? And like, especially since I don't own a car, if it was a car, it would you know be in that column too. But yes. food is a major thing in my life. I spend a lot of money on that. I should be able to count if it's getting more expensive every year. Uh, but that's just my dumb mini rant on the dismal science. Uh, but we already see... People who are making money off of property in California are playing the long game here and are looking down the road 10, 15, 20 years. They want to know that their uh, you know, ETF investment mm -hmm. is going to pay off. And they're making sure that all of the sucker investors they're pulling in off the internet to like buy an apartment building and turn it into a, a speculative asset are going to get paid off and not sue them, or at least in the grand scheme of things, the, the folks that are managing that ETF ownership of the building are going to get their beaks wet. Um, and that's kind of problematic. Like we, we should not be giving the cow away that early. We shouldn't have mm -hmm. people in the assembly saying, oh no, we're, we're sticking to CPI plus five. It's all you have to worry about for the next 20 years. It's like, no, that's a terrible idea. Like we should be coming after that harder. But at this point, I'll take what I can get. Yeah. So basically, we've got two definite wins for housing activists and one uh, absolute setback. So yeah. unfortunately, it really doesn't look like AB 36 is going to be moving forward at all this legislative session, unless it can be rolled into a housing reform package as a whole. Um, but that doesn't seem like it's something that this particular legislature is uh, really keen on doing, unlike years past. So and, we'll see. Yeah. And we did also today see uh, SB 50 get rolled together with SB 4, which we kind of knew was going to happen. So now like SB 50 is basically all of the state except for Marin County, because <laughs> so, the chairman of that committee just I mean, happens to represent Marin County, which has a lot of wealthy single family homeowners. So they're like, we don't want you to upzone our, upzone our lovely beachside community. So uh, it look, so SB 50 is still going to be like the name of the game for the next like year uh, and going to be the major like battlefield on uh, for housing in California. Uh, we're not going to talk about it too much today. Uh, we'll save that, that just, one for another time. <laughs> that would take us forever. It's, it's getting more complicated. They're trying to add some like nifty little 
features, um, but with still keeping it like market based. Like there's still going yeah. to be capitalists making a lot of money, and those just happen to be the same capitalists that give Scott Weiner a lot of money. Yeah, and maybe there's a connection there. I don't know. Somebody should it should look into that. Speculative at this point to suggest that, but yeah, you know, maybe it's the root cause of all of this. But you know, if he if they did change that bill to include like a mandatory fifty percent inclusionary zoning. Uh, then I would start to get excited about it because, you know, that would absolutely absolutely represent a sea change in the development cycle here in California. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd rather it be like 100% affordable, but, you know, that seems like a bit pie in the sky at the moment. So let's see how this all rolls out. And uh, until they massively increase those affordability and tenant protection requirements, it's going to be a uh, hard-fought, fight coming up between the realtors, the developers, and then all of the tenants advocacy groups, which are still staunchly opposed to this. And uh, speaking of affordable and public housing development, uh, we might be able to see some of those finance with some locally owned public banks if the assembly keeps uh, keeps up the momentum here on AB 857. Yeah, so 857 has moved from the Committee on Local Government. uh, Let's let's say what it is first. Okay, so the uh, AB 857 is the public banking uh, legislation that was uh, introduced by uh, Chu and uh, Santiago for uh, bringing basically the ability of large municipalities to create their own municipal public banks uh, across the state. And it would just remove the restriction on those banks from existing at the state level, which is really great news for San Francisco and Los Angeles and San Diego. Um, And it doesn't unfortunately really help the smaller communities, but it does really help some of the largest metropolitan areas in the yeah, state. Yeah, it, it basically allows us to have public banks as a yeah. thing, but it doesn't create one. Exactly. So it would allow the creation of them. Uh, as you said, it does not create its own. Um, but it has now that bill has now moved from the Committee on uh, Local Government in the Assembly and is moving over to the Banking and Finance Committee before it can head to the floor for a full vote. So uh, I don't think this one's going to have to go through appropriations, which is great because that's it's, one less hurdle yeah, for it. Yeah, it's just a regulation. Though it, <laughs> yeah. I, I think the, the way there's structuring it is basically the existing uh, state banking regulators would just also be able to regulate yeah. uh, uh, public banks, which is something they don't really have. There's no like structure there. Other stuff that still has to be figured out is like how to ensure these public banks yeah. that are, are started by municipalities. But it's pretty good trending towards where we eventually want to go, but it's still also one of these like unsatisfying half measures. Like we're not getting a public bank, we're getting the ability to maybe one day have an actually existing it's, it's public It's the same bank. kind of a thing where there was that shortcoming with Costa Hawkins. Like it's like it doesn't it doesn't implement rent control. Just like this bill does not implement a public bank. What it does is it removes the restriction that the state has placed on the creation of these things that we want. So it's I mean, undeniably eight fifty seven is a good thing and I'm very happy to see it be moving forward. Uh, it's just, you know, I want to see the Assembly and the Senate do more and move forward with the actual creation of these institutions that would genuinely help more people in this state and keep things moving forward in the in the direction that we need to go. Because, again, uh, if you are unaware of this somehow, the IPCC has said that we've only got, you know, 11 and a half years or so before we reach an unstable tipping point where everything just is horrible. Yeah. And Getting there is going to take a lot of work and having these kind of strong public institutions to to push for things and having a strong protection for renters and making it so that people are actually going to be, you know, given climate justice through their housing, because that is absolutely a key part of this. Those are all things that we need and we're running out of time to implement them before everything just uh, becomes catastrophic and we have to deal with 
just sea changes, no pun intended. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, to, and to sort of like, you know, bring this home real quick in a concrete example, before we move off this, in parts of South LA where there's a lot of single family homes that are ripe to have solar panels on the top, yeah. the homes are too old to install the solar panels. Yep. The banks won't loan the people who live in those neighborhoods the money to install solar panels, but the gentrifiers that can move in and fix mm-hmm. the roofs and get solar panels, they're getting the renewable energy. With a public bank, we can finance those repairs to allow low-income communities to have solar panels so that we're offsetting those costs. It's uh, There's a lot going on here that we can do with a public bank. Uh, but speaking of folks that do need some more regulation, so <laughs> our private utilities uh, are, are up to it again. Yep. Yeah, our private utility monopolies are up to it again. Let's talk about this. After they burned down the state, like yeah. after they you know just literally decimated an entire town. So- it's because they decimated an entire town and burned down massive chunks of the state, more than has ever happened in the past. Uh, these, the state's three largest power corporations, which are uh, Southern California Edison, PG&E, and SDG&E, are all claiming that basically they need to offer higher profit margins for their investors as a way of offsetting the increased liability worries that are coming from these worsening wildfires. Remember, their job is not to give you power. No. It's to create money for shareholders. Yes. And this is why corporations should have nothing to do with our public lives. Uh, yes, absolutely. So these public utilities are basically being financed through investment. That investment has to be made uh, by private investors in order to pay for those infrastructure improvements, which will then keep our state from burning down every year. Uh, and then at the end of the day, all of this is being paid for by the ratepayers. Yep. So honestly, why do we involve the private investors at all when it's the ratepayers who are going to end up paying for the increased costs uh, associated with increasing the financing available for these utilities? It doesn't... Someone get Jack Humphreyville on the line. <laughs> If only he what, cared about this I'm being kind of told stuff. we don't have a, a landline, no. so we can't do that. Nor would we want to call Jack anyways. Jack is he's terrible. Yeah, so basically right now we're in this really stupid cycle where our private privately owned uh, public monopolies or publicly sanctioned monopolies because they're, they're owned by the investors or they're beholden to the investors at the very least. They get all of the profit. We get stuck holding the check at the end of the day and have to figure out how to pay for all this stuff so that they can make the profit from this. It really just does not make any sense that we are not turning these things into state-run or municipally-run public utilities because that's what should happen when it comes to things that are as important as the electrical generation in a community, uh, you know, the healthcare that's provided, we should be having a single payer system, all yeah. of this stuff. It, it, and it seems like at the end of the day, this will cost me about uh, an extra $200 a year. Uh, and it seems like I would rather spend that $200 sending no Olympics to Tokyo. Yeah. So that is, that is the statistic is that SoCal Edison is pushing for the largest of these increases and it would be a $170 increase for uh, the average household that's covered by SoCal uh, Edison. So, uh, but that $170 would go a much longer way toward helping our friends over at No Olympics, who are they're currently doing a fundraiser to send a group of activists over to Tokyo for some true international solidarity countering the IOC's greed. Uh, the work that they're doing is really great. So please, if you can, throw them some cash. Uh, they've got three mechanisms open to you to do that. Uh, the easiest one is going to be to send the money directly through Venmo, which it's at No Olympics, N O L 
Y-M-P-I-C-S. Uh, or you can donate through their website at uh, nolympicsla.com slash donate. Or you can go to their Fundly campaign, which is fundly.com slash nolympics dash anywhere dash one. <laughs> I don't know why that I last, got a yeah, one that, at the end. That, that last URL get, kind of breaks the cycle. But it, it's going to be a really good trip. Uh, Tokyo is gearing up to resist the Olympics. Uh, they're working off a lot of knowledge that they gained by working with their South Korean uh, counterparts. Uh, Nolympics has been doing some really cool stuff. If you get the chance and you haven't heard it, go check out Rings of Hell, our podcast with yeah, absolutely. them. Absolutely. Uh, but I, yeah, it's Thursday when we're recording this, and I have got a long night of phone banking people for the road to a Green New Deal. Uh, tomorrow is going to be a lot of fun. If you come out, you get a special in these times edition that we got printed just for the show. So you can't get Fantastic. that anywhere else. Yeah. So Chris, you're going to be there. It's going to be a great night. Uh, we will talk to y'all next week.